You're listening to The Outpost, where psychology, faith, and spiritual formation meet. Greetings and welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Outpost. Uh, you, <clears throat> if you've never heard of us before, I'm Dr. Ray Mitch, your host. And uh, <clears throat> I've got a couple of announcements, but before I do that, let me, let me just explain what the, the Outpost is and, and what its purpose is. You heard that a little bit in the introduction, um, that we, we're here to really look at faith, psychology, and spiritual formation. Once one caveat okay i've been i have been struggling with a cough all weekend so there may be moments in time where um i may blow out the signal here with my cough uh hopefully we will get this under control i've been told that um it's a it's a viral thing um and i'm I'm not vaping on the side here or anything because you can see me anyway but um but it's a viral thing and and people haven't uh, been able to shake it uh, for a couple of weeks, and I'm in <laughs> in my second week. So with that being said, I will suppress it and hold it down as long as I can, and then I'll probably have to look away and uh, clear, clear the uh, backlog of things. So anyway, um, this is The Outpost. I'm Dr. Ray Mitchell, your host, um, and it, it, it is meant to look at uh, it's meant to look at the intersection of faith, psychology, and spiritual formation. And, and these areas are not ones that usually we have a lot of conversation about. Usually we, we keep them separate. A lot of times people will see psychology as antithetical or, or antagonistic with our faith. And if, if we're actually looking at um, modern psychology, that is true. Um, but psychology that's looked at through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of faith um, can be very different, and and we can capitalize on the things that have been uh, learned in psychology, but we don't have to buy everything that it puts forward, and that's really what this is about. But the other aspects of that is just faith. Why? How? What? What does your faith journey look like? Uh, and we will be getting back to that um, next week because I want to pick up where I left off um, during the psych monologues. Uh, where I was talking about uh, the spiritual journey and this, the stages of faith, if you will, or the the, um, the, the backdrop to the faith, uh, this uh, spiritual journey. So we'll talk about that, and and all of that really is subsumed under spiritual formation. Um, the outpost is, has a, a larger organization it's part of called Stained Glass International. I just refer to it as SGI. And our goal in SGI is to create space where the doubters, wounded, confused, <clears throat> beat up, beat down, bent and bruised, who feel like their lives are a disappointment to God, can feel accepted enough to be known and know, know other people. And so we seek to be a place where people can meet the biblical Jesus as he is, not as they have been, they have told, been told he is, um, and also just meet him as he is, as he describes himself, as he interacts with people, rather than um, what whatever the established church or what, whatever um, organizations like that you find difficult to do. So with that in mind, the SGI uh, mission is to equip, encourage, and empower the next generation who live authentically in relationship to Jesus, others, and themselves. And what I want to do, here I go again. Um, <clears throat> the the, what I want to be able to do is to develop what I call outposts for the heart and communities for the soul. And at least initially, um, these will literally be implemented as groups online of interest topics, particular topics, and as we get leaders who express an interest in, in facilitating a group online, that's where we'll start. 
we will branch out. My hope is to be in-person groups and, and hosted in a variety of places so people can meet um, and have an opportunity to share their story and be known through their stories, not not be known by their past. And, and so uh, there there is that element of this ministry that we will be uh, developing as time goes along. The other mi- ministry is to sponsor and lead silent retreats for young people. And we have one coming up. Uh, it's coming up in on August 12th through the 15th, so it's only a couple of weeks away. And, and at this point... Uh, registration uh, we're full Uh, there is space limited space and but that does I don't want you to stop if you're interested if you're a currently enrolled CCU student um, you can still sign up and be on the waiting list uh, because we inevitably have uh, people drop off for a variety of reasons. And so if you have the opportunity and you're interested in doing something like that, at, at probably at la- a later point in time, I'll take some time just to talk about uh, silent, silence and solitude and why they are so important even to our spiritual um, faith and what that looks like. So, <clears throat> so a couple of weeks ago, I, I started out well, not a couple of weeks ago. It's been a little longer than that because I've been struggling with all of these health issues and stuff. But um, I, I started out talking about toxic Christians, and and that was really the first one. And we looked at various aspects of of those folks, and and um, while they are usually not very aware of the fact that they're toxic. They don't think they are. They think they have a reason for doing what they do. And, and so they don't see themselves as toxic, but that doesn't mean that the people that they interact with don't see them that way. And so um, after we turned from that, we, we, we spent some time looking at um, what I called non-toxic Christian. Now, now the, th- the biggest difference between these two is um, toxic Christians – uh, are, are about correction. Uh, they listen to correct. They listen to with a critical ear, uh, and they're looking for a way uh, to set you straight. In a sense, now they again they don't they usually don't see it that way, but that's really how they end up coming across. And I call them correcting or correction motivated Christians. Now, non-toxic Christians are connection-motivated Christians. They're, they, and they're, we've been looking at some specific areas and asking the question, so how do they handle truth? Not only God's truth, big T truth and reality, but how do they handle little T truth, the, the unique aspects of your experience as a Christ follower or even as a Christ doubter, whatever that is. And how do they relate to that? And so um, we started there, and then we started talking about uh, the aspect of control and how uh, people tend to have a certain outcome in mind, and they will, in a sense, kind of force you into that because they think that's best for you. I'm reminded of of the old cliche that we had a lot in the 80s and 90s, and that was, uh, Jesus loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. So um, that's the the other part of that is that they don't trust the Holy Spirit to do all the heavy lifting. They feel like it's all on them to do all of that. And so therefore then non-toxic Christians, connecting Christians, are about trust and freedom and choice, and they're willing to give you the opportunity to choose, even if it's not the right choice. It's your freedom to do so, and that that may not that doesn't mean that they're going to bail out a relationship with you, and they don't hold you hostage in, in by their relationship. You know, you don't if you don't make shape up, then or else you know you'll lose the relationship. And and there there were a variety of people in that category that we looked at. Some of them are not very obvious. Some are very obvious. Um, and then and then we turned our attention to how do they handle boundaries um, in terms of 
mine and not mine, me, me and not me, and, and handling uh, uh, or discerning the difference between what is a boulder weighing somebody down that they can't possibly carry alone and what's a backpack, what's just their daily responsibilities and how to empower people to take those on and, and handle that well. So we went through those and then, then we finished up uh, last week we looked at just how do they handle forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. And <coughs> and again, uh, we got all the way through the forgiveness part. We did not get through the repentance piece, which I want to I want to uh, start with tonight um, and look at. You know, what What about repentance? We looked at uh, what genuine forgiveness looks like, what, what superficial forgiveness looks like. Again, I mentioned then that I was indebted to David Stoop in his book, uh, the Loving or uh, Forgiving Our Parents, Forgiving Ourselves, and I highly recommend it. And, and, and so we looked at that, and we looked at a particular process that one could go through in handling really very... Uh, relationship rupturing things that happen. So we looked at that, and and that's where we left off. So what I want to pick up on is go from into the repentance piece. I want to make sure that we hit that, and, and then we also take a little time to talk about reconciliation. Although <laughs> um, when repentance and forgiveness meet, that's where reconciliation occurs. So. What about repentance? And, and uh, you know, a lot of times we will look at Scripture, we'll look to Scripture to ha- get an understanding. Repentance is very much of a churchy word, a Christian word. Um, a lot of times we translate that into, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, sorry is a bastardization of the word sorrow. And I wonder how often it would have, would ha- how often... Um, we've had anybody say, I, I feel a sense of sorrow over my behavior and how it affected you. I, I doubt that we'll ever hear that, partly because that requires a certain amount of humility, a, a willingness to, and a certain vulnerability to admit that what I did hurt you and that really, really, really bothers me. So, so repentance comes in two, two flavors. I, I'm doing the best I can here. <laughs> um, comes in two flavors. One is superficial and the other is genuine. Now, superficial repentance. Now, remember, when we said superficial forgiveness, it was um, the whole idea of, I'm sorry, that's okay, kind of interchange. In superficial repentance, it's, I'm sorry, but. And in a lot of cases, these folks that tend to... Um, try to dismiss what they have what they say they're sorry for is is the essence of that and a lot of times if the other person says but what are you apologizing for they might get a little upset because after all i'm saying i'm sorry shouldn't that be enough and so they end up saying but if you didn't or if you hadn't then i wouldn't have kind of stuff so it has and a lot of times these same people have an attitude of, wow, I'm glad I'm this is a checkbox. I need to check. I'm glad that's over. Um, and so they say all, all the right words, but you sincerely doubt that they have any intention of following through on that at all. In, in a lot of cases, the other thing about this that, that kind of tips you off that this is kind of this is a superficial kind of repentance is they tend to compare what they did to someone else or others, and so they they relativize and minimize um, <laughs> what they have done and the impact. In other words, they're saying, "Well, it shouldn't you shouldn't make that big of a deal of it because after all, it's not as bad as X, Y, and Z, whatever that might be." Um, and so, in a lot of cases, these the, the folks that fall into this this superficial repentance really are not sh- clear about what it is they're repenting for. And again, they're not going to be using that word repentance. They're going to say apologize or something like that. The irony to me, uh, again, and I'm kind of a word nerd about this, but um, the irony is is a, a apology making an apology is making a defense uh, 
And so we use the word apologize and <clears throat> to be repentant, but it's not, I mean, to some degree, it's really not the same thing. But this has really fallen out of favor in our language. And so we don't get specific about the, the folks that are doing the superficial don't get specific about what they've done, their impact, um, how it has affected us. They have no real understanding of that and the potential consequences it can have. Like, um, like for example, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say, okay, are we good now? Instead of saying, uh, you know, I'll give you time to process what I just finished saying. So superficial is, is like I said, it tends to be feeling a little bit like they're, they're just trying to get this out of the way. And that's about it. Now, genuine, on the other hand, um, repentance, it acknowledges that wrong has been done and they are the author of it. They own the fact that that's the case. They offer no explanation. They offer no um, rationalization. They don't offer any of that with their repentance. They are simply going to say, listen, I and and if anybody knows anything about this at all, they might actually use the word that says, I repent. I repent of what I did. I, 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 I will do everything in my power to make sure that this doesn't happen again, which, by the way, is is really how it's described in Scripture. Hebrew really doesn't have a word for the word repentance, um, the old Hebrew. And, and what word was used was called, uh, the word was teshuva, and it means to return. And then the, the words that were, or the, the word for repentance that was used in the New Testament, which a lot of Christians know, is the word metanoia, which means to change one's mind. So if we're talking about repentance, it really is talking about a, a change of one's mind that then leads to a change in one's direction. And, and that's what genuineness is really all about. If there is restitution to be done, they're willing to do it. They're willing to, to not, not based in shame, not based in trying to punish themselves or anything like that, but it really is built on, uh, I understand the wrong that I have done, and I understand the impact it can have on for you in terms of other relationships you have down the road. And so we admit our wrongdoing, we communicate our understanding of its effect on the other person, and we give them the freedom to process it on their own, or even with someone else, really. And, and that's what re- genuine repentance is all about, because there's a certain brokenness in spirit to the person, because they understand the impact that they've had on that other person, and, and they're willing to admit that that's the case. And so, like I said, when forgiveness and repentance meet, we call it reconciliation, which means to reestablish harmony. And reconciliation, it cannot, cannot be done with, with only one person. So if somebody says, well, I'm going to go to somebody and reconcile with them, so how are you going to make them do that? Uh, I mean, if they show no signs of interest in that, and and the other thing about that, too, and I'll just say it now. I don't know if I said it last time, but there's nothing in Scripture that says that I should go to the person and say, I forgive you. Nothing says that. Forgiveness is between me and God, and to, and to release that other person of my demand that they change. And that takes time. It is not overnight. It may be multiple times throughout a period of time, whatever that might be. And that's just, that's just the nature of forgiveness. And so I release that person and I get to the point where they're not, their presence, their, their reality, their uh, ignorance of their, the impact of their words on me or anything else that it has less and less power over me. Because I get tempted, I think, I think we all get tempted into withholding forgiveness as a means to get the other person to change. And when that happens, that's not, not really withholding forgiveness. 
It is trying to hold the other person hostage with the ransom being completely unknown to them. They don't even know. They, 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 you know, and so on that basis, a lot of people will say, well, then I need to let them know. Well, maybe, yes, I, I, I think there is a place for confrontation, and that's what that would be. But confrontation is not a means to extracting repentance. It can't be. Um, now, I can confront somebody, not violently, it's not about violence, but I, I can communicate to somebody the effect of their behavior on me, but I, I'm going to have to let go, go of my strings on them uh, that if I do this, then they should repent. Because if that's the case, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. And if the person is... Um, harmful in their interactions with us or even abusive all i'm doing is making myself a target again and i I don't really really need to do that and so confrontation doesn't always work oftentimes it doesn't and and it, it usually it exacerbates things and makes things far worse so that's that's has to be used very reservedly, very carefully, and usually you need to be sure to to um, consult with somebody more mature that understands the the impact and the potentials for all of that because we're not going to make reconciliation happen. Reconciliation has to be a voluntary thing that two people enter into, both understanding that they probably have something to repent of, and they both have some work to be done in terms of forgiveness, and they go into it knowing that. So that that brings that to a close, the, the, the forgiveness, rec- uh, repentance, and reconciliation. Now, two other dimensions that I want to uh, mention about connection-driven uh, Christians while I take a drink. Um, and there's two other questions. One is, how do they handle intimacy and how do they handle conflict? And these are, the, these are listed, and I'm going through these in order because of, of importance. I don't know of importance, but how much they fit together. So if I'm not armed with an understanding of forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation, I'm probably not ready to handle conflict. But the thing that I will say about this is how, how do connection-driven people handle conflict? Well, the first thing is, is they understand that conflict is not a fight. Conflict is not that. There is such a thing as constructive conflict. There, there, it, it does exist. It does exist. But it, it has to be driven by a dialogue, not, not alternating monologues, but a dialogue between two people, which usually means one person speaks and the other listens and vice versa. So conflict I think in most of our cases, we carry around within us um, a caricature of what conflict is. And, and so because of that, then, um, I, I, I think that's, what we, we, that's why we have become, in a lot of ways, such a conflict-averse society in relationships. And Christians are not immune at all. As a matter of fact, they will sweep all sorts of things under the rug just to avoid conflict because this is what they think they're avoiding not the kind of constructive conflict where the next step beyond that becomes intimacy really so conflict one a couple different things that i say to students when i'm talking about this is it's about a dialogue not alternating monologues secondly conflict is the gateway to intimacy and so if we don't ever have conflict, and if I ever hear people say this, I oftentimes, I'm thinking to myself, and I may not say it to them, maybe later I might say it to them at some point, but if you're not having conflict, then somebody's not being honest because we withhold information from the other person about what we're comfortable with, what we're not, our preferences, and so forth. And we're afraid of creating conflict and then 
we end up not saying anything. So how do they handle conflict? Connection-driven Christians. And, and the, the first one, the first um, style, I, I guess I would call it a style or a strategy. Maybe that would be better. Yeah, are the people that are win and lose kind of people. And if we go through the four dimensions that we've already gone through, then they, they see truth as, as a means to an end. When, so when we're talking about different kinds of truth and that kind of thing, <clears throat> they, they are really all about using truth to, to win the argument. The same thing it goes with control versus trust. They, they want a certain outcome. They will do everything in their power to do that. And that fits right into then the boundaries that we talked about with the intimidators and the manipulators and all of the, it's about outcome people. <clears throat> Forgiveness and repentance is a minor detail in their mind. Um, they believe that they have a righteous reason for winning the battle. And so therefore, that's, that's the, the way that they go. Win and lose approaches <clears throat> to handling conflict never builds relationship ever it really doesn't <clears throat> and and so uh that's the that that's the only one of these strategies i want to talk about that is never one that helps relationships at all okay so that's the first one the second one is the person who tends to withdraw and i i would say i probably see this more amongst men than women, although people that are afraid of losing the relationship will withdraw because they 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 want to keep it status quo. And so they'll withdraw by not saying anything. And in doing so, then they withhold the information necessary to actually be known, for one, and for another, uh, to actually have some resolution to this conflict. So when it comes to truth, they want to suppress the truth. Um, they're equally as controlling as, as the intimidators are. And they're kind of the, I will withdraw and I hope the other person will come toward me. And what, what you end up having, uh, and if you're watching the video, you see the one person uh, in, in conflict with one another. I think I got my fingers right. And one person withdraws and then the other person pursues. And so what we have is a pursuer and the pursued, and then this person gets tired of pursuing, and they withdraw, and then the other person starts to pursue. And the interesting thing about it is the space between these two people never get smaller. They never connect. And so the boundaries can be alternate between walls and non-existent. Um, and the forgiveness and repentance, again, in terms that would fit in with the truth thing, they don't really talk about that. They just sweep it under the rug and make believe everything is fine. So there are times, th times that we need to withdraw from one another because we're we're going to hurt one another, and we recognize that. And somebody calls a timeout and says, okay, let's take a, a break. Now, we've got to make sure to come back together. There is a tendency to say we need a break and then never come back together again. And, and so that's just sweeping it under the rug. But um, there is a time. Withdrawal doesn't necessarily impact the relationship, but it, it does have an impact on the relationship for sure. And, and a lot of times we use the word shutting down. The person shuts down, then essentially it's an emotional withdrawal. <clears throat> and another way that this gets done is the silent treatment. That's withdrawal. And, and it's almost as if the silent treatment is screaming at the person with a bullhorn, although absolutely no words are coming out. And, and the relationship has been so conditioned that when the person goes silent or shuts down, the other person is already starting to turn toward them and come toward them because they're afraid what's going on in that silence. So that's the withdrawal. The next strategy, we've, we've got uh, the, the win and lose, the withdrawal, and the third one is compromise. 
Now, again, compromise is not always bad. It is really horse trading. I will give you this if you give me that. I will go to uh, a play if you'll go with, to, with me to a football game, okay, or a hockey game, whatever. And it's, but it's a trade, and trades run out eventually. It, sooner or later, somebody, if they're going to be honest, says, no, I don't want to do that, and then it all breaks down. But... It, it can be an intermediate step toward the kind of uh, dialogue that constructive conflict brings about. So compromise with truth, it embraces the truth as it is and understands it, but it imposes a trade or a quid pro quo, this for that, uh, as a means to get something done, which goes to the control, I want to get certain outcomes, but it sacrifices the connection, really. And, and so <clears throat> boundaries, absolutely boundaries can be um, uh, respected and lived within. They're not manipulated necessarily. But again, no just triggers a bargaining session rather than no triggers. I accept that. You take your time and you choose the way you see fit. Um, actually, compromise can set up a lot of hurtful situations that forgiveness and repentance is badly, badly needed. And again, it, it compromises always a trade. So I'll forgive you if, or I'll repent if, is, is the, the process in compromise. And when that's the case, that one, it doesn't, it doesn't square with scripture in terms of just how God, um, uh, um, what do I want to say? Models that for us, because he, the scripture makes it clear he he forgave us even while we hated him. So there's no trade there. He, he's just simply doing it and then letting us choose. And, and in compromise, there's always a, an implicit. <clears throat> there's always an implicit this for that in the compromise. Now, the, the fourth one is yield, and, and this is caving in, for lack of a better way to put it. It's like, whatever you want, I will go with that, and the truth is irrelevant in most cases in yielding. Um, now, is there a time, just like compromise, is there a time in relationships where I need to yield? Yes, I do. I need to overcome my own willfulness and my own selfishness, and, and yield to the person that I, I care deeply about. That makes perfect sense. But yield, in this case, when it comes to trying to resolve a conflict, is, is again, a, a comp, it's sort of a strategy for compromise, but it looks like I'm giving in. Um, because there's always a, a, a piper to pay at some point. Um, say that fast. Um, so that there's a cost to be paid eventually for that yielding part. They expectations when people tend to yield, expectations tend to grow and grow and grow and grow, and then there is oftentimes an explosion of some sort because after all, I have been yielding all this time. Now it's your turn to do that. So, truth suppressed. Control, it's embedded in there. Boundaries, um, there, there are very few boundaries. People with, that yield all the time usually have very indistinct boundaries. And forgiveness and repentance is really not even on the table. Now, the last one is one that includes yield, includes compromise, and includes at times, at times, uh, a withdrawal. And it's called resolution because at times we, we separate to gain some perspective. But the truth is vitally important, not only the big T truth, the things that actually happen, for example, or, <clears throat> or how the person has been hurt, or the things that have been said that don't maybe certainly don't square with how God has in, indicated for us to behave toward people. And, and so there's a time to withdraw and reflect 
And that's what's key is the reflection part. And the reflection is meant to equip me to come back together again. And that's what resolution is. I mean, if you think about the word resolve and break it apart, what you have is a re-solve. And, and together we have this dialogue that says, this is how I saw it. How did you see it? And see, connecting Christians are not intimidated by conflict. They see conflict in a very different light. And in light of these dimensions or these strategies, they far in a way understand that resolution is the desirable way to move. And they start with dialogue rather than monologue. And and a lot of times what you'll see in any kind of conflict between two people are, like I said, alternating monologues rather than and people talking past one another and, and rather than connecting. So conflict ends up being, um, you know, the, the, the gateway to actual intimacy. Because once we, we engage in this kind of conflict, we're known. We're known more deeply than we were before. And that's what's key here in terms of conflict. Um, Max Lucado once said, um, you know, that, that uh, battles or conflict is inevitable, but that the whole idea behind, um, uh, but war is not. And, and that's a long-term war. And, and so those kinds of things are embedded in a lot of what we're talking about. So... What about intimacy? How, how do connection-driven Christians or Christ followers, how do they see intimacy? And they see intimacy as being known, so they're willing to allow other people to see them, and, and being driven by knowing, knowing others. And knowing others isn't just knowledge and information. It's, it's knowing them, experiencing them, hearing their story and understanding their story. And, and intimacy is not something we constantly live in. I think we phase in and out of that. And in a lot of ways, intimacy is really just is a moment rather than there are moments of intimacy because we as humans... Um, <laughs> Are, are are a very distracted bunch you add in south uh, south you add in social media and we're even worse but i think the question has to be which space are you going to live in are you going to live in the space in your head or the space between you and the other person because where we're going to be known where we are going to connect where we're, our stories can be heard is in the space between us not in the, in the space in our heads. And realistically, I mean, which is humorous, because you, if you think about the introduction to uh, Star Trek, it used to be space, the final frontier. And that's exactly true in our interactions with one another. The space between us is the final frontier. It is, it is the tough place for us to enter and be known as we are. So I, I had an old friend who used to say that uh, the definition of intimacy was into me see. And the thing is, is that if I am going to allow people to know me and I haven't taken any of the time or done any of the work to know the landscape of my own heart, then how in the world am I going to share it with anybody else? So I need, I need to have done the time and the work in, in looking at it and, and understanding it and, and um, wandering through the landscape of my heart. What's interesting is if you think about it, at the very beginning of, of time and God's introduction of humans into the relationship with him, where did he meet them? In a garden, Right. And it was called the Garden of Eden, but it was in a garden. And in a lot of cases, we can look at, and this is portrayed, if, if you've ever seen um, the movie The Shack, it's portrayed in the book The Shack about the main character's heart is a garden. But he sees it as a mess, but the Holy Spirit sees it as exquisite. And I, 
I, I can't give away the garden of my heart, if you will, if I don't actually own it. So the thing to keep in mind, and, and what is so important for intimacy, is first, it's essential for growth. We all know, a lot of people know, maybe I shouldn't, we all know, but a lot of people do know this, that if, if a baby is born and never touched, but its physical needs are cared for, it will still die because it is not known by touch. And that's how babies are, uh, know that people know them. I mean, there was this uh, famous experiment, not really experiment, but observation was made on a bunch of the um, infants that were survivors of the uh, r- the fall of the Iron Curtain, and in Romania, and, and they all there was like thirty some kids with one caretaker for those thirty kids, and they had all of their physical needs cared for, but not all of them got actual care and holding and cuddling and talking to and all that, and some of them died as a result of that, and so. Intimacy is essential for our growth, and yet we long for it, but we hide from it. And then the second thing is that I would point out is that intimacy is absolutely essential for love. It's essential for love itself. And what I wanted to do was just to read you a quote from Leo Biscaglia, um, he's a popular psych writer, and he he actually captures it. Now, this is a little longish for a quote, but I think it's well worth it for uh, to, for you to hear. And it goes this way. Some people are convinced that they are emotionally safe when they remain guarded, ex- unex- unexposed, and thick-skinned. They are cautious not only to not to truly reveal themselves for fear in being seen for who they are, they will be exposed and ultimately left defenseless. Protected and unassailable, their relationships never go beyond a superficial level. At the same time, they lament the absence of the deep intimacy necessary for love. When we defend, protect, and guard, we isolate ourselves into loneliness, which, by the way, sounds like today. We may escape severe emotional trauma, but in so doing, we miss the ultimate joys of true intimacy. Only by allowing ourselves to be vulnerable do we stand a chance of succeeding in love. If, in the end, we are deceived, betrayed, or tricked, we can at least say we tried. And in a sense, we have succeeded if we do not allow the scars of experience to cause us to develop a thick and impenetrable skin. Yeah. And then he ends with this. When we gain the insight to realize that vulnerability is the soul of love, we will surely heal again. Now, that one word in there is part of it being essential for love is vulnerability. And most of us love to talk a good game with vulnerability, but we don't, we don't move into that, even with some of our closest friends often. We, we, we can create the appearance of vulnerability, but it's not really vulnerability in the sense that we're sharing something of a current issue. A lot of times we'll share things that have happened already, but we won't talk about the things that are going on right now because that makes me way, way too um, vulnerable. And and yet we, we know, I think we all know inherently that vulnerability is the soul of love. And yet, We avoid it at all costs. The last thing I'll mention is in terms of intimacy and connection-driven Christians understand this. It is absolutely essential for love, for community, I'm sorry. It's it's essential for community. And and C.S. Lewis once said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. And so community is not so much a collection of people. It's not just a group of people that agree to a single goal. It's more than that. It, it's the nature of being unified together, calm, communicating. We get that word. And, and 
commune, commune, all that. And unity is the other part of it. And so we don't have to be the same. We don't have to be that at all. We can be individuals and yet still be unified and have the kind of community we dare to want to have. That's exactly when I say that I want to be able to be a place that creates outposts for the heart and communities for the soul. It's those kinds of places that we can tell our story without shame, without fear, and be known as we are, not as we should be. Because it's there that we grow. It's there that we grow. It is not going to be in learning the new next self-help guru's information to, to, to be better. It's going to be in the context of a relationship because that's where, that's where we came into existence was as a result of a relationship. So my, my question is this that I'll leave you with, and that is, what kind of Christ follower are you going to be? You could be the you should kind, <clears throat> which is the, the <clears throat> correction-driven people, who we would point out as the toxic ones, that they're there to correct people because they think correct behavior equals spirituality. Or, on the other hand, we could be a me-too kind of Christian, a Christ follower, one that is driven by connection, one that is willing to share life together, one we would point to that would be non-toxic, who looks for connections points not to trump somebody else's story. I mean, a lot of times you can listen to somebody's story and, and then you go to, yeah, me too, and then tell your story and their story has been lost. So it, it's, they, they, they listen for connection points to understand the other person's world in whatever way they can. And there's somebody that is driven by empathy, not sympathy. Sympathy oftentimes says, well, <clears throat> at least you're not, and make a comparison, or, <clears throat> or providing solutions rather than empathy entering into the person's world and hearing their story and understanding it and doing what you can, another EM word, empathy, is empowering them to move toward a, a different place. And I didn't say a solution. I just said a different place. And maybe that different place is connecting with you because it empowers them and strengthens them that indeed they are worth something. Because in a lot of cases, our, our relationships with people are a test of their worth. And they don't believe that, but we, we do because we're in relationship with them. And so we move into that place with them. So toxic, non-toxic Christians. And I think these six dimensions are, are useful to try to understand and, and just ask ourselves, what kind of Christ follower am I going to be? Am I going to enter people's world and, and understand that I'm human too? I make mistakes. I, I blow it. I, I walk away from uh, the, the significant relationships in my life, not the least of which is the one with God. And I do that too, just like everybody else does. That doesn't make it okay. It doesn't have anything to do with that at all. It has everything to do with we're on this journey together. We can share it together and begin to walk in the direction we want to go toward becoming more like Jesus, toward becoming connecting, connecting Christians and, and be able to move, move from there. So that's it for tonight. I, I, I stayed a lot, a lot longer than I thought I was going to be able to. So thanks. Thanks for tolerating me kind of huffing and puffing in the background here. Um, but a couple of things just to remind you, if you have questions, we're going to make an effort, um, my, my social media folks and me, uh, to, to put a question out or two during the week for you to interact on Instagram and just 
ask us questions or put something other some other issue out relative to what I, I have been talking about in the uh, in the podcast tonight. So think that one through. Give it, shoot us some questions there that we would be delighted to hear from you and uh, hear how how uh, what your thoughts are and reactions are to some of the things I say. Um, you can hit the 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 uh, <laughs> digital home. You can hit the digital home at sgi-net.org, sgi-net.org, um, and it will ask you to join the community. You can do that um, and, and get emails from us when things change on the website, uh, and, and that will slowly happen over time. If you're interested and want to get a weekly um, uh, encouragement on healthy relationships. You can sign up for the digital devotional. It's five bucks a month. Um, and, uh, let's see, what is that? Um, uh, $25 for six months, uh, and 50 bucks for a whole year. Uh, and you'll get a devotional every week about healthy relationships and what you can do to, uh, facilitate those, Again, all of the, all of the the um, donations, all of the uh, paid resources we're offering, all go into uh, funding uh, the efforts that we're doing in SGI. Um, you can follow us on three different social media outlets: Instagram at SGI underscore International, SGI underscore International, Facebook at Ray Mitch M I T S C H and LinkedIn at DRMitch. So those three social media. Uh, the podcast can be caught on Spotify, on iTunes, on um, App, Amazon Music, and probably anywhere that you might uh, consume your podcasts. Um, and finally, as I always say, if you have interest or you know somebody that wants to support our efforts and and trying to come alongside uh, the next generation of of uh, either Christ followers or those who not and might be searching and want to find out more, um, and they want to partner with us to continue to grow not only our scholarship fund to help students go on uh, the uh, silent retreat. Um, and my hope would be eventually other universities, students uh, joining our silent retreats. But all of your tech, your gifts are tax deductible, um, and that's for the silent retreats or the general fund to support SGI. And you can do that. If you prefer to send a, a physical check, you certainly can do that. Make it out to SGI. Uh, the address is SGI, P.O. Box 322, East Lake, Colorado, 80614. Um, so uh, there you have it. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to listen in. Uh, if you like what you hear, pass it on and, and refer it. If you like what you hear, write a review. That certainly helps our, our profile be raised. For people to find us. And uh, Lord willing, I will be without a cough next time as a distraction. And so I am going to sign off before I lose my voice entirely. So as always, love you. Later. Bye.